You're listening to Making It Awkward. I'm your host, Jessica Wilson. Welcome back. A quick thank you to SC Whatever, an excellent username, for the Apple Podcast Review and the latest Patreon subscribers for helping keep this show on the air. The voice of today's guest might be familiar to you. Dr. Blair Peters here, full-time gender-affirming surgeon. I met Blair at the U.S. PATH conference last fall. Loyal listeners heard the summary of that conference in the episode titled, Is Non-Binary a Third Gender Category? Blair had moderated a presentation about detransitioning during one of the surgeon's days. And when I saw him in the lobby the following morning, I jumped into a seat across from him at one of those tall, long, cafe-style tables. I asked Blair about the audience reception to the detransitioning talk, and at some point I pivoted to talk about BMI and access to gender-affirming care because... Of course I did. On January 24th, Blair posted an Instagram reel about having more complex conversations about BMI, surgery, and the dehumanization of both surgeons and patients. Let's talk about BMI and access to gender-affirming surgery. This is a long topic of conversation, but the thing that I've really noticed about this discussion is it often lacks nuance and has very rigid statements on either side that aren't reflective of reality. And this was a perfect opportunity to extend the invitation to this chat. I learned a lot in this interview and retained something new each time I listen. In two weeks, you'll get to hear a follow-up conversation with two of my colleagues about this episode. If you have your feedback, you can send it to makingitawkwardpod at gmail.com. Now, let's get into it. All right, and I'm excited to introduce who I have with me today. Hello, everyone. Dr. Blair Peters here. I'm a full-time gender-affirming surgeon in Portland, Oregon. I am so happy about the introduction. I'm sure people are going to be ecstatic to hear who's on the line today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no, thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Sure. Uh, Do you want to tell us a bit more about your practice as we get started? Yeah, for sure. So um, like I said before, my practice is full-time gender-affirming surgery. Um, So really what that looks like is head-to-toe, so facial surgery, chest surgery, body contouring, genital surgery. Outside of operative clinical medicine, um, I do a lot of research work, some advocacy work as well, and spend a lot of time in community spaces trying to just sort of normalize care for all folks and take things a little bit out of the ivory tower and just into the community and sort of facilitate more of a connection between this so-called patient pool and provider pool. Oh, I mean, I've heard that, but not in that context before. Indeed, the pools. Mm. Uh, You and I met at US Path in Denver. Then you and I got into chatting Mm -hmm. about surgery and surgeons, and we got to the topic here today. So do you want to share a bit about your thoughts in that Instagram reel? I believe the reel you're mentioning is one where I talk or sort of get into the discussion about sort of body weight, BMI, and access to gender-affirming surgery. The other theme of that was sort of talking about humanization of the surgeon as part of this discussion. I'd say this conversation in a lot of ways is a long time coming. I've been asked to talk about this for a really long time and have been wanting to find some good avenue to have like more of a prolonged conversation. Um, 90 second Instagram reels (laughs) aren't made for every topic, let's put it Mm -hmm. that way. But I think to sort of start the conversation, I feel like so many things in gender affirming care, it's just been put in such a black and white scenario, which Mm -hmm. isn't always the reality of the situation. Um, And sometimes it feels like 
you know, on the surgical side, if you don't just say yes and do it ever anyone's asking you to every single time you are a gatekeeper and you are harming people, etc. Oftentimes, any suggestion of or discussion about body weight and surgery are instantly labeled fat phobic. Also acknowledging there is a lot of fat phobia in surgery and mm-hmm. gender affirming care. And mm-hmm. BMI is a load of garbage. It's not a metric of health. All of these things can be true. Mm-hmm. Um, but there also are for some surgical procedures, very real technical limitations that are correlated and relate to body size. And that's the reality. Surgery is incredibly physical. So those physical limitations and technical limitations are very real in the operating room. And sometimes the culture around those discussions and the advocacy on either sides is so radical and so extreme. It Mm. doesn't like allow for nuance and actual conversation, which I feel just drives a larger wedge and divide between patients and surgeons and just further ostracizes people from accessing care. So my goal was to just try to facilitate discussion and find some way to build alliances to actually start moving forward. Cool. Uh, my first questions immediately from that were like, what are the technical and physical limitations? So if you want to or could take us through what that looks like. Sure. So I will preface this conversation by saying that I'm obviously one surgeon and these are my opinions based off of my experience in the operating room. But Mm -hmm. I think that's the first point. People forget that surgeons are people. That means we have human limitations. We are not all the same. We are Mm -hmm. not robots. We have different training backgrounds. So we're not just interchangeable. Um, So I think it's also critical to note that a surgeon or any healthcare practitioner's role is to self-regulate, which means we have to understand when something is past my ability or past something that I can technically do. So Mm -hmm. that's sort of the number one thing to keep in mind as I'm talking about these things. In my practice specifically, I don't have a medical reason or technical reason why I would have a weight cutoff for facial surgery or chest surgery. So I do not because I can perform those operations technically Mm -hmm. as long as the patient is cleared and is safe to tolerate general anesthesia. I can do an operation for them. Mm -hmm. Genital surgery is where I hit a very different scenario. Um, So speaking about phalloplasty is a good example for Mm -hmm. people less familiar. Phalloplasty is when we create a penis surgically. Most common example for phalloplasty, we use tissue from someone's forearm and we transfer that down to the genital region. And that forearm tissue is what we use to shape and create the penis. But we have to connect that to blood vessels and nerves down in the genital region. So the more tissue that is on top of someone's pubic bone, the further away we get from the area we need to be. Um, The other consideration is the urethral lengthening portion or urethral connection of the surgery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The flap tissue that we take has a very finite blood supply. So you can only take what we call the extended area that will reach down to your natal or sort of natural urethral opening. Mm -hmm. That can only be usually around four centimeters longer than the rest of the flap tissue we take. Mm -hmm. If we push it any further, the tissue dies. And you can imagine someone's natal urethra to pubic bone is already a pretty far distance to traverse. Okay. So we just don't have a way of technically making that operation work in folks that have a ton of body weight in their pubic mons lower abdominal region. 
question. And that is a very area specific situation. It's a very specific situation. Um, the other thing unique to phalloplasty is the penis we create doesn't have the natal structures of a, a natal penis, like deep corporal bodies that are like anchored down to the pubic bone. Mm-hmm. So the skin tube that we create has to heal to the mon skin. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine there's a lot of motion, especially in folks that are larger bodied. And that can create a lot of wound breakdown and fistulization of the urethra, which is sort of a secondary issue in folks that you're really pushing the limit on. Um, you'll often run into that problem where it's very difficult to get that area to heal. Tell me more about that movement. I am not familiar. Yeah. So if you kind of think about the penis we're creating doesn't have any of those deeper structures anchoring it down. So it's mobile, right? And then if you have a lot of tissue, so fat and skin over the Mm -hmm. pubic area, that's also very mobile. And we have two mobile objects trying to heal against each other, which is Uh very, very difficult. So just if somebody is fatter in the area, there's just more of it and it moves more. Right. And that can create more wound breakdown and more problems with fistulization into the urethra. Got it. Just because of the movement. Yeah. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. So those are the two biggest issues with phalloplasty. Um, Vaginoplasty, the way that we do it here with my partner is robotically, meaning the vaginal canal is dissected from inside the abdomen with basically tiny robotic surgical arms. Mm-hmm. Um, so intra-abdominal surgery, meaning there's a camera in the belly and we need to be able to see. So if there's too much visceral fat, you can't see anything other than fat. And there's a tiny camera. And then the other issue is the patients in what we call Trendelenburg. So their feet are up pointing towards the ceiling and their mm-hmm. head is down towards the floor. Mm-hmm. And in order to try to see, we insufflate or inject the entire abdomen full of gas, which jacks up pressures to respirate, basically to make someone breathe in the operating room. Mm -hmm. Um, So at certain body weights, we start not being able to ventilate the patient in surgery, which obviously is a problem. So we do have a weight limit for that procedure. We do not have a weight limit for vaginoplasty being done only from the outside. So the more traditional or open approach where you're not doing any intra-abdominal surgery. Okay. So we have three there. Yeah. Okay. Two have weight limits. The third, the last is not. Depending who you talk to, a lot of (laughs) surgeons would have weight limits because that, again, the hardest part and the most difficult part of a vaginoplasty is dissecting the canal. That's where your Mm -hmm. risk of like rectal injury comes from. And the bigger somebody is, the more tissue that's falling in on the sides, the deeper you're going, the harder it is to see. Um, So it can increase difficulty where you're going to eventually hit the ceiling of what's that surgeon's capabilities. And that's going to be a moving target depending on who you're talking to. I know, right? I'm, I'm like, look, I got to go back five minutes and ask follow-up questions. This is just, okay, hold on. I'm sorry, that was a lot. Um, no, it's not at all. It's just my memory. I'm like, okay, there's the first surgery and I, okay, laparoscopic, right? Is that what you said, robotic? Yeah, so there's robotic vaginoplasty, which is the one that okay. involves being inside the, the tummy area, which is where, that's where weight can be a bit trickier. Yeah, um, how do you think, folks who get like hysterectomies who are fatter and like uh, other uh, bariatric surgeries like how do those compare like why is one easier better and the other is not yeah no that's a great question because the area we're working in for the vaginal canal is in the very 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 deep pelvis it's not just in the more central area of the abdomen Uh like we are going to the bitter end of those robotic arms 
holding up the cola and pushing everything out of the way to get into the very deep pelvic space. So it's just mm-hmm. a different area of the abdomen, whereas hysterectomy or like gastric sleeve were higher up. Got it. So it sounds like it's a lot of tissue like situation, a lot of like what I'm hearing is a lot of just like more tissue generally. Yeah, it's, it's literally a technical thing. You know, like I, I've definitely had cases I've done where I can feel like I am at the limit of what I can do right now. And that's mm-hmm. not a very comfortable feeling, I will say. Um, but because you just you're at that point where it's like, if there's any more, I, I can't. This is the the most that I can do in this situation. And I think that point is probably different for most surgeons. I was going to ask about that. Like, is that unique to an individual or is that a like tool? When you say at your limit, what, mm. what does that mean? I just, I'm look, I'm grasping for an understanding. Yeah. So it would mean, um, so like if I was doing microsurgery, for example, like where I'm connecting like the blood vessels and the nerves, if okay it's so deep that I'm holding, like I'm pinching the instruments with the tips of my fingers and I can barely get it together. Okay. If it's any deeper, I can't do it, for example. Got it. Um, Or with like the vaginal canal, um, if there's so much tissue coming in from the sides that I can't see to stop the bleeding, then that's the, the feeling or the sense of, I'm at the limit of what I can get blood control or hemostasis on. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of a feeling that you have where you know, like, if I run into problems, like I have no more maneuvers left to fix the situation. Got it. And that could be different person to person. Yeah. Cause a lot of it will depend on where you trained. How many of these cases have you done? There is a learning curve. And, you know, like Mm -hmm. you said, instrumentation too, like there are definitely ways that you get better. And I think those of us, you know, I can at least speak for myself with genital surgery, especially Mm -hmm. with phalloplasty over the last few years, Mm-hmm. I have challenged myself with trying to go higher, higher, higher. But each mm-hmm. time I do, I am hitting a wall. And then I have mm-hmm. to stay there for a while and figure out, can I try to inch this forward without massively increasing the complication rate? And it's yeah. a it's a very back and forth thing. Yeah. I appreciate that. I love how transparent that was with the, like, the more you're able to train on a thing to do a thing, the easier it gets and the more comfortable somebody gets doing that thing. Do you think your training influences the BMI limits and the amount of tissue that you're comfortable working with? I do think some of it is definitely experience-based. I remember one time I was kind of trying to talk about this and someone kind of came in, another surgeon, not doing the same work that I do, but just making the blanket statement that surgery isn't ever more difficult than bigger bodies, which just surgical procedures are so different. (laughs) Like you can't just make a blanket statement that says that. So if we're thinking about the spectrum of top surgery, if I'm doing someone that, you know, is like a smaller person versus someone where the incisions and the resection are five or six times as big, the surgical time is three times as long. My fatigue level is triple. All of those things, like that's a more difficult surgery for me obviously. So like, those are the types of statements that I don't find helpful, right? Um, Because it's not reflective of reality. But yeah, like a lot of it is your own comfort level, because some of those cases are physically challenging. Like if I have a day and I'm doing three top surgeries, which is like six mastectomies, and let's say like everybody's BMI 40, 50 plus, 
I feel like I was hit by a bus by the end of the day. It's really, really physical. So you have to build up your endurance and figure out ergonomically, like, how do I do this more efficiently? How do I minimize OR time for the patient? How do I protect my own back and neck and physicality? Like, those are the things that do take time to figure out because the surgery part needs to almost be like a no-brainer. I have that in the bag. I can do that in my sleep. And then I can focus on all of these other challenges that you may face as you try to go, you know, push your own limits of what's within your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So individual surgeon, just physicality and I mean, <laughs> stamina seems like a very interesting choice. We'll yeah. say endurance. <laughs> and I mean, <laughs> that's the other part that, I do want to acknowledge with this is not every surgeon will try to move forward or challenge themselves. And like, that Mm -hmm. is where the sort of fat phobia piece is very alive and well, like there absolutely are people that have arbitrary BMI cutoffs that for sure they could operate past for things like chest surgery, I think is the best example. Like there's folks with BMI 35 top surgery cutoffs. There's no good reason for that, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. As the data at US Path showed us. What would make it easier physically and time-wise for you to be able to see more patients with a higher BMI? Would that be like less time, less surgeries in a day? Would that look like more support, more humans in there literally supporting you? Would that look like different instruments? What does that look like? I think for some people, it probably would. Uh, You know, in my practice, I have pretty good support. So days that I'm doing just cases that are going to be more physically laborious, I make sure that I have extra resident support or whatever it is. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be able to work around those things. But I will say, like speaking more generally, like the system doesn't support or reward you for doing those more difficult cases, right? Like, If you do a top surgery in someone with a BMI of 20, that takes you a third of the time as someone with a BMI of 60, Mm -hmm. the productivity assignment you Mm -hmm. get for that is the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like same thing with having all of these discussions in clinic. Would it be easier for me if I just had some arbitrary BMI cutoff that's out there so I never see those patients and never have to have those challenging conversations? Yeah. Probably. Mm -hmm. Because they're really, really hard conversations to have. And especially in the work I do, there's a lot of really hard conversations to have. Mm -hmm. So I think part of it is just trying to do the right thing. But we're really not incentivized to do that with the way that American medicine is set up. Like that Mm -hmm. is one of the big realities of the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the data that you were referencing related to top surgery is really good data, but only to a point. So it mostly the top surgery BMI papers that are out there are talking about mostly folks in kind of like the 25 to like low 40s. There's very, very little out there when we get into like the 50s, 60s. And again, it's kind of being framed in this black and white. There's no increased complications with high BMI top surgery, period. I think that is true for a lot of folks, but Once you get to like 55, 60, et cetera, Mm -hmm. at least in my hands and my experience, I have Mm -hmm. way higher rates of wound breakdown, huge difficulty healing surgical sites, um, needing to go back for washouts, do prolonged wound back changes. And folks do great, but I just warn them up front like, hey, 
this may be very, very difficult. And we might be looking at a repeat surgery, months of dressing changes, like a really hard battle for your body to heal this wound. Mm -hmm. But folks will heal and do great in the end. But that's been my experience is like, it is a very different conversation Mm -hmm. at that size. And it would be maybe at a BMI of 35. So even that, you know, got taken up so quickly and used as like, see, there's like no weight issues with top surgery. And it's like, yes and no. (laughs) Yeah, I think at US Path, it was the consistent conclusion during the surgeon day. It was like things may happen, but there's no reason to use BMI as a a gatekeeping tool. Like stuff may be different, but that's fine. Uh, Do you think the wound healing and additional complications comes from the longer surgery time, the or something other than just somebody's BMI? Yeah, um, I think it's a multitude of reasons. I think part of it is when you're operating, what we're doing, if we use top surgery as an example, it's really like soft tissue surgery. So surgery on the skin and fat. Mm -hmm. And fat in general is quite poorly perfused. Like it doesn't have a very robust blood supply. Right. So... When you're operating and you're using a lot of cautery for hemostasis, which is like Mm -hmm. a thermal injury, and then general anesthesia can decrease tissue perfusion a little bit, you sometimes then with post-secondary swelling, you're pushing the blood supply abilities of that tissue and you need good blood supply to heal. Mm -hmm. So the biggest issue I've seen, at least in my hands and folks that, you know, maybe hovering around that like 55 to 60, et cetera, they'll Mm -hmm. often get areas where the fat blood supply isn't adequate and they get fat necrosis, which forms like an oil, breaks the wounds apart. Mm -hmm. And then it's a lot of like washing out, letting the tissue granulate and heal secondarily. Mm -hmm. Um, So it seems to be my theory is more like the perfusion of that tissue is a Mm -hmm. rate limiting step. The longer OR time, I don't think ever really helps like longer surgeries. If you keep pushing it out, there's just complications if you're under general anesthetic for too long, regardless. So I don't think it helps matters, but I don't think it's like the primary issue. No, I think that was super helpful. And I love that you already said, and you just have different conversations with people. So I think it's a great way to address that one. I wanted to add one additional detail about um, just a practical implication of larger body size and vaginal plasty. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that I have seen is if you think about vaginal plasty and the construction of a vaginal canal, all patients know every surgeon will cancel their patients that you need lifelong dilation to maintain Mm -hmm. the vaginal canal. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some folks that the way that their body weight is distributed, they are so large in their genital region that they cannot actually dilate themselves. Mm -hmm. That's a huge issue because Mm -hmm. we know the canal is dependent on dilation Mm -hmm. and you can't necessarily always rely on having a support or someone to dilate for you. Mm -hmm. which then predisposes you to stenosis, which then you're looking at potential secondary infections, sepsis, all these different things. So Mm -hmm. I have seen some folks that mechanically just cannot reach their genital region, Mm -hmm. which is a contraindication to creating a vaginal canal. It's just, it's, it's medically unsafe. Yeah. That one has come up for a while. I think I was even at a conference where they were talking about they're creating a new instrument that would like, help people dilate with and yes, an additional instrument, but having like supportive people in their lives, like wouldn't be 
like enough for somebody to feel comfortable with that for a surgeon or? I think that would be a very, have to be a very nuanced and honest conversation with like stability mm-hmm. of that support and relationships. Cause again, it's lifelong. It's not like, oh, you just need someone for six weeks. So, oh, yeah. What is, tell me a duration what? of support needed? Oh, yeah. Um, for genital surgery, it's usually, um, here we often have folks have kind of 24 seven support for four to six weeks. Mm-hmm. But the thing with vaginoplasty is, you know, you need to dilate. We've seen people 20 years after vaginoplasty oh. that won't dilate and will have stenosis. So that's the big discussion that needs to happen. Like, it's great if you have support now, but we got to think like your entire life spectrum. What's that going to look like for you? Um, and that's a lot of the nuance with any of these surgical com- conversations. Like even some of my patients that want to stand to pee with phalloplasty, but like want to go live in a cabin in the woods somewhere. Yeah. We got to think about the practicality of that. If you go into urinary retention in a forest, (laughs) (laughs) there's all these very real conversations that are important for like other people's like goals and interests and what else Mm -hmm. they want out of life. Yeah. Um, clean places to care for wounds like yeah do you have mm-hmm. access to a shared bathroom a yeah your own bathroom do you where do you live all of those i'm thinking and i'm wondering a lot of this seems like it is about both barriers to care and barriers to being healed from care and truly right now i'm thinking and you and i can be brainstorming i'm wondering why you think the like push pull on bmi and anti-fatness and such is a harder conversation to have and people feel like personally attacked in that conversation whereas you know somebody living in alaska or needing to live out of their car like those things would just like Mm. make sense from a different standpoint what do you think the difference is there that's a great question. The first thing I would say about that is I don't want to create the perception that when I'm having that conversation with folks that the majority are responding in a negative way. When it comes to genital surgery, because again, I don't have top or facial weight limits. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say nine out of 10 patients, when you speak from a technical perspective, and I show them photos, like, mm. of this is how much length I have here. This is how much length mm-hmm. I have here. Mm-hmm. I'll show them on their own body if that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Nine out of 10 people like really understand. And I, in my experience, appreciate the honesty. And we're, we seem to be able to build enough trust that then the focus of the conversation shifts to what is our plan to access care and like figuring out what that's going to look like for them. Mm-hmm. So I will say when you just have honest conversations with people, that's 90% of the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you will hit the odd person that you try to have that conversation and it's really hard to get there. And it sort of turns to more or less saying that you're fat phobic and you're gatekeeping and trying to sort of engage in threat-based care. If Did I could use that Threat-based care. We're like, nice. you know, if you don't do this for me, then I'm going to do so and so and so, which is obviously God. like not appropriate. Um, so I think it's complicated. Like there's so much that people bring into appointments, right? Like being trans in itself in America is a pretty hard card to be dealt for a lot of folks. And often folks have like dealt with weight issues and bullying around that of their entire lives, 
or they come in with such excitement about, you know, this consult appointment that even if it's not necessarily something they're carrying with body weight, that can be a channel for their feelings of, you know, not getting their gender affirming surgery getting channeled into. A lot of folks have struggled with eating disorders in the past mm -hmm. or actively have eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And then having conversations about weight loss is incredibly mm -hmm. challenging. Mm -hmm. um, so there's just so much there. And especially in a surgical consult, there's not always time to unpack each one of those issues separately, which is why follow-up visits are important. <laughs> sure. It's interesting. After the eating disorders portion you mentioned, like having conversations about weight loss. And I think that may actually be why a lot of this gets a different energy because I'm thinking like, and the guy in the woods or someone who's homeless, like we would be talking about housing. We wouldn't be talking about like, hmm, <laughs> maybe you can help me out. Like with yeah, me. I, I think I get what you're trying to say. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I might not know what I'm trying to say, but like the solution for the a solution lot of in itself is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that for sure, that, that part is true, but it's also not the technical part. So like you, we could say, like there needs to be less adipose tissue on your pubic mons or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, but it, but instead we call it like weight loss. The way that I, I guess I'd summarize it. The hardest situations are when you do see someone who really has struggled with disordered eating, but there is something about their body habitus. That's a major issue for the specific surgery that they want, but their body or their anatomy is a technical limitation for you as a surgeon. Like those are the toughest scenarios because it's like, well, where do you go from there? And I don't assume that I always have the right answer. And in those situations, I will often bring the patient back either with their support people or engage with their mental health provider if that's helpful mm -hmm. to them or engage mm -hmm. them with the one from our team and mm -hmm. have like bigger discussions about what's going on with their mental health, their disordered eating, where are our goals for gender surgery? What other options do we have? And kind of just taking assessment of all like the bigger picture of what is going on and figuring out next best steps. And that looks really different for everybody. Sometimes that's finding an alternative surgery that can meet some of their goals that doesn't have that same limitation and working around is that going to be enough for them. Sometimes if it's like, this is absolutely what I need. And we have to look at some way of having less tissue present in an area, then that may look like a really careful discussion with a mental health team about weight loss. That may look like trying to stage something. It's very different, which I think, unfortunately, like so many things in affirming care, like the hard and fast, just like blanket statements and the, the guidelines don't work for everybody. One of the things that uh, came up at US Path and that comes up in a lot of my conversations about weight loss before getting gender affirming care is the like inherent malnutrition that exists with like quick weight loss, especially for somebody whose surgery date is, you know, fast mm -hmm. approaching. So, you know, using, you know, either injectables or cocaine or meth or whatever it is to lose weight, like those pressures inherently obviously exist. Is that something that surgeons like generally or people could, would, should be concerned about is the stuff that's happening to a body in that quick rapid weight loss before getting surgery? Yeah, I can't speak for obviously how every surgeon cancels patients, but if I'm talking to somebody about weight loss, I do back it up with that as well, that 
you know, going into surgery malnourished can be even a bigger issue. So that isn't the answer. It's just drastic means to lose body weight. So Mm -hmm. oftentimes if folks are interested in engaging in exploring ways of weight loss, and I'll usually put them in touch with our mental health and social work team who can often start with referrals to a dietitian or like queer owned gyms and like safer spaces if they've maybe not necessarily had positive experiences with physicality in the past. Mm-hmm. And that's helped a lot of people. Some folks will be interested in for other medical reasons, like exploring medical options, but I kind of just let them decide what that's going to look like for them. But I do make the point that, yeah, I, anyone that has went off and lost a significant amount of weight I bring them back and do a lot of nutritional testing and dietary logs and things to make sure that they're nutritionally replete for surgery as well. I don't know. It's been interesting to where I've had some folks that, you know, we've had that conversation around phalloplasty or vaginoplasty who have kind of went off and will do virtual check-ins every three to six months and they'll lose a pretty significant amount of weight over a year long process just with some lifestyle changes and come back and have also quit smoking and are very appreciative, happy people. And I think a lot of it is trying to just have actual rapport and relationships. And that's not going to work for everybody, but at least showing up for somebody and helping them in the ways that you can and trying to help them navigate what might be modifiable or what they want to be modifiable for them, you know, acknowledging that some folks don't want to lose weight and that's Mm -hmm. also totally valid, Mm -hmm. but there's got to be radical honesty on both sides. I've certainly seen some folks that they want me to do something and I'm like, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to lose weight and that is fine, but that doesn't Mm -hmm. change that I can't do what you're asking me to do. And Mm -hmm. there, we should be able to have that conversation in like a mutually respectful way. I think is what it comes back to. I think that takes us back to the humanity and the humanness. I think you were speaking about, because I noticed even in the middle when I was talking about people and just like as parts, (laughs) that type of conversation, you know, happens, right? People, we have parts and we're talking about those things. And, you know, that is just some of how that like dehumanization of patients, which I totally engaged in. But you also bring up the dehumanization of surgeons and the way you were just speaking about it right now, that makes it like super helpful to think about the individual limitations um, and how they're not the same across the board um, and how much, you know, somebody pushes themselves, like indicates their actual limitations and how, you know, practice can improve both outcomes and comfort. And so do you think that anti-fatness and fat phobia like inherently... Oh, they're alive and well. Let's be clear. <laughs> Let's be clear of that. Yeah. They're, they're there. They're there. Um, yeah. I, yes. Do you think that some surgeons only take the good looking clients so that their website looks pretty? I think there's some that just post the good looking clients. There. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, I think it's just this. So, you know, it, we could be talking about many different issues, like under the umbrella of just like gender affirming care in general right now, where everything is looked at and has been radicalized in like such an intense way that it it feels like the most risky thing is to actually just have an open conversation and acknowledge that there is middle ground <laughs> with some of what is happening right now. And I think that is 
a lot of the discussion around body size. Like there certainly are advocates within our communities that are very much surgeons are fat phobic, period. I certainly know some that are doing really amazing things for folks with larger bodies and like absolutely pushing themselves to the limit day in, day out at sometimes real like cost to you like emotionally and mentally and it's hard work like it's very very challenging so it's sometimes hard to wade through that where we're all just assumed to be these things and all of that work that you're doing it's often just like never enough yeah i could definitely see say my former less self-actualized self no. <laughs> saying, I assume you're getting paid enough uh, to have, a, you know, a hard day and work hard. So if, if there were people who aren't as evolved as I am, uh, who said that people get paid enough to like be that uncomfortable, what would you what would you say to that? Uh, after 15 years of school, being called day in, day out, any time of the night, regardless if I'm on call or not, or with my family expected to deal with whatever, deal with death threats, physical threats, all these things to do the work I do. I am mm -hmm. paid as an assistant professor at an academic institution and mostly do Medicaid work. So if I wanted to make money, I would be doing many other things other than mm -hmm. what I'm doing right now. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting narrative with a lot of the criticism. I think those of us that do gender surgery get or you're making money off of trans bodies and all these things, I would quadruple my salary <laughs> if I went into private practice and just did bread and butter cosmetic surgery. Mm -hmm. There's actually a few things I could be doing where I'd make less money <laughs> than what I'm making right now. But yeah, mm -hmm. like, do I make decent money as a surgeon? For sure. But it is nowhere near what you put into it with your emotional energy, mental energy, physical energy. The only thing that keeps certainly me here is a passion for the work and wanting to work with patients and doing the right thing. The financial motivation is laughable compared to what it takes to be in this position. At least that's been my experience. Interesting. Um, so I think what you have helped me understand is that fat phobia may present in like your training, especially like if you're the people who have trained yeah. you only like have certain BMI cutoffs, like people just won't get that exposure to that work and won't know how to do it and have different comfort levels. Hundred um, percent. Yep. Yeah. That and, is totally accurate. And how much one wants to push oneself totally will limit and indicate the limits of their surgery there. Their like physical environment, are there any like scopes and tools and things that could be better or different in the field that would be more supportive for people who are interested in doing these surgeries? Yeah, I think the we definitely have things that ergonomically help, like both with patient transfers and trying to take the time to adjust bed positions and all these different things. I yeah. use, um, I operate with like a supportive back brace to just help me out ergonomically. Yeah. But I think the biggest system level change that would encourage more people, honestly, at the end of the day, mm -hmm. this is like America is thrives on capitalism. Mm -hmm. People should be incentivized that, a surgery should be compensated like based off of time. And it's like, if it's taking you three times as long to do something, then okay. it should be reimbursed at that rate. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you look at folks in private practice, like I don't have that issue because again, I'm salaried at an academic institution, but folks running a business, for example, mm -hmm. do you think they're incentivized to operate on folks that are maybe bigger and their surgery is going to take longer depending on what it is? 
no, it's like a terrible business model. Mm -hmm. So those are the real repercussions about the way that these systems are set up. Um, that applies both to like bigger bodies. There's a lot of inherent racism. There's a lot of inherent transphobia with like CPT codes and the whole medical system at large that kind of reinforces all of the, you know, the things it was founded on. Mm -hmm. If you had any other solutions, what would they be? I don't think I have solutions. I probably have more questions <laughs> than answers. I think the starting point is being willing to have these discussions and being uncomfortable on both sides. And both for, at the end of the day, like physicians and surgeons to understand that the core of our job is to do right by people. And that does involve like needing to check and challenge our own biases constantly and really reevaluate our processes. Mm -hmm. But on the patient side too, like understanding that Yes, there's a power differential in these relationships, but at the end of the day, like this is another person I'm sitting across from. And if we can both just be radically honest in what we need from one another, I've very rarely been in a clinical encounter where we can't find some way forward to get folks to where they want to be. The problem with that is folks come in with guards up and so much medical trauma and not sure if they can trust the provider that they're sitting across from. And I think the reason I can successfully navigate a lot of these things is just authentically trying to do the right thing. And the reality is that not everyone necessarily is going to be coming from that place. And I think so much of that comes from representation and who we have in medicine and all these professional roles. So I think a lot of it just comes back to work of involving representation and who has a seat at the table and who is enforcing these policies at institutional levels and society and guideline levels. Um, I'm sure it's similar in your work and profession too. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, just taking a gamble. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it all really does come back to that. And then do you think there's a world in which a surgery could be performed on someone who had a lot of adipose tissue on their mons pubis or otherwise? Yeah, I mean, it is by several surgeons, and but it takes time to get there. And I think we should be able, like I should be able to say that some of the surgeries I do are harder in folks with bigger bodies and not yeah. be canceled yeah. and attacked over that. Like that's not reasonable. Okay. Um, and I think that is a big problem that is being created by not allowing surgeons to talk openly about those things. Because do you think you're encouraging mm. people to want to engage in that? Where if they say anything mm. like that, you're attacking and shutting it down. You're further pushing them away from mm. providing the care that you need access to. And that's where I get frustrated with the sort of very extreme rooted types of activism that don't allow for any step towards they just want the leap across all of the steps that need to happen to get to the actual goal all so right. i want to go stepwise because that's the reality of doing these surgeries is it's increasing Let your comfort me. zone one by one pushing and challenging yourself and that is the way forward and we have to be able to accept that and work through it together and talk about it all right would you be willing to come back, say, around WPATH or discuss in Lisbon <laughs> uh, any follow-up things that may arise? Yeah, for sure. Are you? I guess you're coming to Lisbon then. I mean, now I need to because if you're going to be there, I need to be there. <laughs> <laughs> I've also never been to Lisbon, so it's supposed to be great. 
I assume it will be lovely. So yeah. yes, but I will <laughs> see you in Lisbon, I guess. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks again to Dr. Blair Peters for coming on the show. In two weeks, you'll hear a psychologist, Dr. Zoe Amaro Jimenez, and Isaac, who you got to meet in that U.S. conference recap episode. If you want to share your thoughts on this episode, again, feel free to email makingitawkwardpod at gmail.com. Next time, you'll hear from the dynamic duo at Diabetes Digital, Jess and Wendy. The two of them had the incredibly popular platform and podcast, Food Heaven, for over a decade and have pivoted into doing diabetes work full time. Our interview is as much about the age old question of what do you want to be when you grow up as much as it is about diabetes care. I also get to ask a couple consult questions and what they think about the prediabetes diagnosis and if it's even real. If you like this episode, you can leave me a rating or review. You can also subscribe to the podcast Patreon. Until next time, make it awkward. This has been Making It Awkward. I'm Jessica Wilson. You can watch this episode on YouTube and Spotify. This is a production of The Body Politic and is supported by Patreon members and the legacy of Sacramento Outboard Services. All of the social media clips you see are done by Jen Jacobs, who also edits and mixes the show. 